All right. Well, you know, as I was thinking about this passage, of course, there's so many things you could think about. But one thing that couldn't escape me is how our past always comes around. You can't escape your past. I mean, uh, look at the news and right now what's trending is the political news, right? You know, what Trump said in the past, what Cruz has done and and, and what do they do? They, they reach into the past, and they're trying to uncover something that would destroy them politically. Well, rest assured, unconfessed sin in your life will come back to haunt you. And as I look at this passage set before us, I couldn't help but to think of Judah. You know, we studied Judah in chapter 38, and now we've come full circle. And we're going to see how God used the past. It doesn't matter how long. God has plenty of time. We don't. And he, he resurfaces his past, and he has to confront his past, as we often do. And unfortunately, he went for years and years without confessing his sin. So with that, let's go ahead, and um, I want to kind of give us a recap before we jump into this chapter. Um, of course, we want to continue our, our, our study from last week. And so I, by way of recapping, I just want to share a couple of things that uh, obviously I can remember that we studied about. Um, let me just say that Jacob's sons are no doubt feeling pretty good about themselves at this point uh, in the book of Genesis about some of the things uh, that had befallen them. First, because of the severity of the fa- famine, they were forced to return to Egypt for a second time to purchase some food. We know the situation was so bad and food was running out. On their previous trip to Egypt, Joseph carried on a charade. Why? They didn't recognize him, but he recognized them. He spoke to them harshly, accusing them of being spies. He said, <laughs> You came out to spy out the nakedness of the line. You're spies. And he incarcerates Simeon and sternly warns them not to return to Egypt unless they brought their youngest brother, Benjamin. And so they left their tails between their legs, didn't they? They went back, they went back to Canaan. Well, we know what happened. The food ran out. What do we do? There's only one place that has food. We need to go back to Egypt. So Israel finally agrees to let Benjamin go. And upon uh, returning, they notice Joseph treats them completely different than their first trip. He's kind. He's benevolent. He releases Simeon and invites everyone over to his home for a full course meal. They are his honored guests, and they're all stunned. I mean, just one step after another, they're stunned. They're like, how is this guy so different? Why is he treating it this way? And we know the afternoon culminated on an up note. And for once in a very long time, all the brothers ate and drank and made merry. It was as though time stood still. And again, this brings us to chapter 44. The men prepare for their trip home. And I'm sure they're riding high. Things are looking real good. They're returning home with their donkeys overburdened. I mean, they're bulging The sacks are filled with grain. They're leaving Egypt in peace rather than in fear. And more importantly, they were returning back to Canaan with their baby brother in hand. Things are looking good. 
And I can't help but to think that Israel's boys were feeling really, really good. No doubt they're looking forward to going home because for once in their lives, they wouldn't be the object of their father's consternation. I mean, you look at their lives and it's, they're always doing something wrong. But for once, they're going home and they're feeling good. Hey, we've done a good job. We got the food. We're bringing our brother back. Things are looking good. We finally have done something right. And you know, I don't know about you, but I think we all look for our parents' affirmation. And these boys haven't received it for a long, long time. And as fathers, we need to be careful how we treat our children. They see more than we we give them credit for. They see our favoritism. They see partiality. They also see neglect as well. They know when they've been neglected. You know, why does he get the new bike? Why do I get the secondhand bike? Why does he get the new clothes and I don't? You know, we play uh, play favoritism. Remember why Israel's uh, sons sold Joseph into slavery? Because Israel favored Joseph above all the other children. Folks, dads, children need their love of their fathers. Are you spending time with your children? Are you favoring one child over another? Because, you know, they have qualities that attract you. Hey, you know, uh, here's Johnny. Here's, here's my basketball star. You know, the fans love him. The coach loves him. Hey, the girls love him. The kids got it all together. Well, how about your daughter? Oh, she doesn't exactly match up because, you know, I, don't, I can't relate to her. You know, me and my wife can. Again, we leave our daughters neglected. And we try to live vicariously through our kids. I'll tell you what. If you don't give attention to your children, they will often receive the wrong type of attention from the wrong sources. One day you're going to blink your eyes and stand at your doorstep as a six foot five gorilla wanting to take your daughter out. Now, I'd be able to handle it. I don't know about you, but I can handle it. (laughs) Or, you know, you have a son who's resentful because you're showing partiality to another son. We could do that too. We need to spend time with our children. While there is still time. Now I know uh, some children may not walk with God. And I understand that. But I, as a parent, don't want to be the reason why they don't walk with God. They're my responsibility. God created me for them. So tonight, um, I have three areas we're going to cover. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3, the conspiracy. Verses 4 through 15, the confrontation. In verses 16 through 34, the confession. So the conspiracy, confrontation, confession. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. It says here, And he commanded, this is Joseph, the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's sack in the mouth of his... Money in, I'm sorry, money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his grain money... So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. Joseph had colluded with the steward to load 
their sacks with food, as much as they could possibly carry. And in addition, he wanted them to return all their silver back in their sacks. This would continue to reaffirm what the steward divulged in the previous chapter, where he told the men in verse 23, Peace be to you. Do not be afraid. Your God, your God, and the God of your father, he's the one who's giving you treasure in your sacks. And as far as they were concerned, this was construed as an act of benevolence on the part of Joseph and that God was somehow still working on their behalf. Then we have the most important component to this conspiracy. Joseph told the steward to place his own personal silver cup in whose sack? Benjamin's sack. Benjamin's sack. This, of course, was to make it look like Benjamin stole the cup. This is a setup. So they arise early the next morning, only to discover their animals already fully loaded and ready to go. I mean, here the, the, the night before, they had a great evening. Their host was amazing. They had the best meal. They laughed, made merry. They get up the next morning. There are their animals, fully loaded. Like, oh, what's going on? Things are looking great. And they're ready to go. And I'm sure they expressed their gratitude to the servants and to the steward. And off they go. Now, I don't know about you. How would you feel? Here you are, ready to go back home. Animals fully loaded. You're excited. You're excited. We're going home. All of us are going home. And notice here the confrontation. Verses 4 through 15. He says here, when they had gone out to the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, get up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why, why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. Notice the instructions Joseph gave him. He wanted the steward to ask them. Again, he was specific. Why have you repaid evil for good? Kind of a moniker of their life. Except at this point of their life, they're not doing that. And so here, here's Joseph. He's very specific. And he says, is not this the one from which the Lord drinks and with which he practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. He was to excuse, uh, accuse them of exploiting his master's generosity and, of course, their thievery. Two, various, two serious charges. Especially, it's coming from the one who's charging them. And that's Joseph. The one second only to Pharaoh. Notice verse 6. He says, So he overtook them, and he spoke to them these same words. And, and I could see in my mind's, again, my mind's eye, they're full. There's a spring in their step. They're excited. And here they are with their animals. Man, trudging along. You know, they, they have over 200 miles to go, and here they go, and they're almost at the border of Egypt. And here comes the, the sound of chariots. What, what is that? What can that be? And as they turn, they see the dust, and then they see the steward's face. And the steward doesn't look, exactly look happy anymore. He looks a little different. His countenance is different. 
And they begin to think, my, what's wrong? Why are they approaching us? And so the steward begins accusing them of taking the very cup that Joseph, or that gave Joseph his incredible powers of divination. The inference is they had presumed to steal away his powerful cup for their own use. They took the one thing that gave Joseph his power. Think about that. Think about that. That's like, okay, you go to Apple, and you somehow make it into their building, and you take their next biggest object, whatever that is. You just, you, just, you know, this is a corporate sabotage. You've defanged Apple, okay? Well, you're saying, you take this cup. You've taken this cup. The thing that gives Joseph his power, this cup he uses. Now, I don't believe for one moment Joseph used the cup for acts of divination. Why? Because as you uh, examine the life of Joseph, whenever he sought to interpret a dream, he sought God for the interpretation. A cup is never mentioned. Furthermore, I, I don't even think um, this cup was used for divination. You know, I think he's just using it as a prop. I think it was all a ruse to maintain the masquerade. However, in that day, it was common knowledge, especially those ancient people, the pagan practices of using a cup to see the future or to seek out answers. And it's no different in our day. You know, uh, for example... If I pulled out a board with letters on it, and this board had a little movable object with a little glass in the center, what would you call that? Oh, common knowledge. We all understand that, right? Or how about if I had a rabbit's foot in my pocket and I pulled it out? What do you think I would use that for? Good luck. So a cup in that day, they understood. They used it for divination. They understood. It was common knowledge. They would take a cup of water, fill it. They would drop bits of gold and silver and they would, let it, they would see the, the shimmering and, and they would begin to read it like they would read the tea leaves today. However, we know what the Bible says about divination. You know, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 18. <clears throat> I have to at least make you guys turn the Bible once when I teach. Verse 9. It says, When you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, you should not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. It's the same thing in our country. We're not to follow those things. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you, and you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you will dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed you or such for you. Again, the Bible condemns divination. Now, I started to think about this. How many Christians today dabble with the occult? 
How many walk in labyrinths, light candles? How many chant and empty their minds? Those are Eastern practices. Now, you know, what's interesting about that is, you know, uh, you're told to empty your minds. And that's, that's Satan. Because meditation from the scripture says we're to fill our mind. We're to fill our mind with God's word. We're to meditate on God's word, to take it in and, and chew it up and assimilate the word of God. Yet Satan is a deceiver. He says you have to empty your mind. The scripture says we're not to embrace those pagan practices because they lure us away from the one and true living God. You know, yesterday I received a phone call from a gentleman asking me about a stone he received in the mail from Israel. And he was concerned that maybe there was some curse placed on the stone or it might have some intrinsic mystical power. And after a few moments of talking to him and kind of setting the record straight, uh, I reassured him there was nothing magical about the stone. Unless you threw it, of course. But I warned him that he needed to focus on the rock, Jesus Christ. And this is what happens, folks, when you're not anchored in the word of God. You're tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. So here they are, accused of taking the very thing that makes uh, Joseph powerful, and they're accused of stealing it. And that must have just blindsided them. What do you mean repay evil for good? What's he talking about, Reuben? Judah, Simeon, what's he talking about? What have he done? Have you guys? No, none of us have taken it. So I can just imagine they were totally blindsided. Notice verses 7 through 8. And they said to him, Why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? The men immediately deny the steward's accusation. They're saying, we were never done such a thing. Hey, we demonstrate our honesty by returning the silver, which had been placed in our sacks the first trip. Why would we steal silver, especially this time? Notice the steward is accusing them of ingratitude and theft. And, and again, Joseph has been testing them all along the way. All along the way. And... Fortunately for them, they've been passing the tests, but Joseph keeps pushing the issue. Notice verse 9. With whomever, whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. Interesting statement for, uh, for them to stay. The brothers were confident of their innocence that they even offered to become Joseph's slaves, and if the cup were found on any one of them, that one person should die. Pretty heavy. It's like, hey, we haven't done anything. I can imagine them standing there almost defiant. We haven't done anything. And I, and, and I think, you know, after going over test after test, it's starting to wear on them. We're like, we haven't done anything. We don't deserve this treatment. As a matter of fact, if you find that cup on that person, they should die. Notice verse 10. And he said, now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave and you shall be blameless. Notice the steward took them at their word, knowing full well what the outcome would be. After all, he placed the cup, right? 
But notice they had spoke without thinking because they were caught up in the heat of the moment. They acted rashly. The steward even went as far as changing the terms. He says, death would not be involved. He said, with whom it is found shall be my slave. Just don't worry. There's no death involved. You guys talked about death. I'm not talking about, I'm going to change the terms. No one's going to die. And the rest will be blameless and free to go home. Again, he's demonstrating his generosity. He is in control. They're not. Notice verses 11 through 13. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. So he searched. He began with the oldest and left off with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. You know, I began to think about this, and I wonder what went through their minds as each one opened their sacks and discovered not only all the grain they were carrying, but all the silver they were loaded with as well. He was blessing them with free grain and returning their silver. And what's interesting is you look at this passage, no one raises the issue of the silver. And I think it's, it's supposed to show the men how generous Joseph had been to them. This is yet another act of benevolence on the part of Joseph. Again, reinforcing the steward's charge of repaying evil for good. And look, as you, I can imagine as you open the sacks, there's silver. Again, where did that silver come from? Joseph, he gave you free food, gave you free, your silver back. He's good. And you almost get this sense that, again, they're tired of being falsely accused. And I can see each man, starting from Reuben, grabbing and, and revealing the content of each sack. He's, give me that sack, open it up there, look, nothing. Then the next brother, nothing. Then the next brother, Nothing. There's only grain and silver. That's it. There's no cup. And with each sack being opened and no cup, they no doubt felt more vindicated as each bag was opened until they came to Benjamin's sack. Verse 12. Dun, dun, dun. The plot thickens. And I wonder what their thought processes were. I wonder what they were thinking. We don't know what Benjamin was like, but they did. And I'm sure he was nothing like them. Otherwise, Israel wouldn't have loved him. He loved him. He was endeared to him. And I wonder if they thought they were being set up. I'm sure that came across their mind. They probably reasoned that there was no way Benjamin could have done this. But how can we reassure the steward of his innocence? If they had been set up, there was no way of proving it, and they had no leverage. The fact of the matter is, the cup was in his sack. Now we have to keep in mind, Joseph is the one who arranged this entire ordeal in order to test them as to, as to how they were going to respond. And isn't that what God does to us? He puts us in situations to see how we respond. And he says, you could pass. I always give you the way of escape. But how are you going to respond? Do we freak out? The times I freak out is because I have not put my mind on the word of God or my focus on the Lord. Because I know he is faithful. He's going to give me the way of escape. But when I become frazzled is because I have my eyes in the situation rather than what God is going to do. 
Again, Joseph has set up these testings to see how they're going to respond. Because if they had any resentment towards their father, Benjamin, or their father or Benjamin, surely this situation would have revealed it. They had a decision to make. And let me tell you something. When your life is on the line, self-preservation takes over. Self-preservation takes over. And that's the seriousness of this passage. You know, often we read it through rose-colored glasses, but these men's lives were at stake now. They're at stake. And here's the rub. The brothers could have used this as an opportunity to rid themselves of their younger brother. You know, they could have easily reasoned, you know, what does Benjamin mean to us anyway? I mean, he's a, a brother from a different mother, right? He's not related to their mother. He's a half-brother. He's at least 20 to 30 years younger than all of them. Most of them, if not all of them, had already been married and have children. And again, no doubt some of their kids are probably just as old as Benjamin. So there's a little disconnect already by age and relationship. You know, I have a half-brother as well. I don't know him. I was out of the house married. He was just four or five years old. But I don't know him. And, and I look at this passage, and in one sense, what does he mean to us? The only thing I know is dad loves him. Doesn't love us like he loves him. Certainly has an affection on him. Furthermore, dad is on his way out. And maybe he'll struggle with the news of Benjamin's enslavement. It'll give us an opportunity for a bigger slice of the inheritance pie. So what does Benjamin's life mean to us? And I think, I think this is what Joseph was trying to exploit. How were they to respond? Did they change? Were they the same men Joseph knew before he entered Egypt? Or were they different? Had they changed their ways? Have they been transformed over the course of time? Were they going to commit a similar mistake they had made with Joseph? Were they going to stand with Benjamin, no matter what the outcome would be, or they throw him into the proverbial pit? You know, Harry Truman has this quote from Mark Twain on the back of his desk. And you know what it said? It said, always do right. This will gratify some, and it will astonish others. I like that. Always do right. You know, there's nothing wrong with doing right. It's always right. Jesus said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. We're talking about self-sacrifice. And this is what Joseph was trying to look for. Were they willing to sacrifice for others, or were they still self-serving? Were they still that group that he knew? Selfish bunch of men. And we can be that way, can't we? Whether it's our home, growing up, or now as adults. You know, we were having this conversation the other day. And it's amazing that you look at men who are not married. And as the older they get, they get more set in their ways. And it becomes more difficult for them to get married. Because they are set in their ways. You know, I know God wants to deal with our hearts. And I hope that I'm, I'm changing and I hope I'm still teachable and I don't want to stay stagnant. I don't. 
I want to be used by him. My question to you is, what would you do if you were them? Your wife and children are back home. They're waiting for you. They're depending on you. And there is a strong possibility that you might not ever see them again. Okay, Put yourself in their place. You're facing enslavement. The chains, man. The whip. Hard times. You're advanced in age. You cannot endure the physical load you, like you did when you were younger. It doesn't look good. Your younger brother, well, he's caught with the stolen goods. What should you, what should you do? You can easily reason, well, I didn't steal the cup. I mean, he has it. I can leave. I'm free to go. He said, I can go. Why should I sacrifice my, my life? What would you do? What would you do? Fortunately, as we'll soon see, they took the moral high ground. Again, notice verse 13. Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. Notice they rented their clothes in grief and immediately set, saddled up their, their animals and went back into the city. The tearing of one clothes is still a common custom in that part of the world to this day. It demonstrates the, their pain that they're experiencing so much so that it cannot be contained. So when you see someone tearing, it's just they've been trying to deal with the pain and they cannot deal with it. It comes out. It's an outward expression of the pain they're experiencing. Which made me pause to think. Imagine. Imagine the pain they were going through. That they all tore their clothes. They all understood. They were so close. They almost made it out of Egypt. And now this. It reminds me of the same anguish Joseph went through as his brothers sold him into slavery. How Joseph cried and cried, how they ought not to sell him into slavery. And now here they are, tearing their clothes, facing Egypt, on their way back. Talk about a death march. All the momentum they had going was swinging the other way now. So they returned to the city, broken men. And what I find interesting is Benjamin says nothing. There's only silence. He doesn't argue of his innocence. He doesn't defend himself. There's no mention of a response, only silence. What does the scripture say about Jesus, about being a lamb led to the slaughter? Silent. He didn't defend himself. Didn't defend himself. One thing was becoming apparently clear. There was no way they could allow their father to go through another ordeal. Losing Joseph was one thing. However, the thought of facing their father with the loss of Benjamin was quite another. They remember the anguish their father went through when they came home with the news that Joseph was no more. Imagine that day. They remembered. They remember what it was like when they came home and had to tell their father that, hey, we found his coat. Hey, look at the blood. Hey, an animal must have torn him apart. Joseph was no more. And you know what? I think they remembered the guilt that overcame them as they were the cause of his pain. And to know that they were lying to their father. They knew the truth, but they lied to their father the whole way. Every one of them. 
And what they discovered was they weren't, they weren't exempt from the pain. They thought that they could exempt themselves from the pain, but they were subjected to the pain as well as to their father. They experienced it as well. The pain of seeing their father weep for days on end. They couldn't live with that pain either. They thought they, can, they could with Joseph, but to relive it again, they couldn't bear the thought. Not with Benjamin. They couldn't deal with it then. Now that they're older, you think they could handle it? There's no way. So rather than return home and face the pain and the probable death of their father, they decided it would be best to return with Benjamin. It's like, you know what? We can't deal with it. We're better off going back to Egypt. That is far more better than going home and facing dad. This says a lot about these men. There's been a change over the last 20 years. 20 years earlier, they abandoned their brother. 20 years later, they couldn't abandon this brother. Something's changed. Take note, there's a bit of irony here in this story. The brothers couldn't wait to rid themselves of their brother, Joseph. And here they're trying to keep their brother, Benjamin. He too would end up like Joseph, enslaved to Egypt, both of Rachel's sons. Interesting, I thought. Both Rachel's sons with the the capacity of becoming slaves of Egypt. And so Judah and his brothers, verse 14, came to Joseph's house, and he was still there, and they fell before him on the ground. It's interesting how this verse underscores Judah over his brothers. Why? Because in a few moments, Judah is going to make an admission to their past. And again, think about it. What was that like for Joseph? There, waiting for their return. I mean, he sent his steward out. He knew what his steward was going to do. He knew the plan. But what was that like for Joseph? Waiting and waiting. Waiting for for his steward to return. What was he hoping uh, to to, uh, uh, see when, when he returned? What did he expect? Did he expect only Benjamin to return, considering his brother's track record? If so... That was okay with him. Benjamin could stay with him and he'd be safe with him. I wonder if he too was surprised when he saw, when he saw all of them returning. I wonder if he was overjoyed or in shock or not told. I can only imagine Joseph thinking, you know, I know those guys. They'll, they'll throw him under the bus. Stuart will be back. He'll bring back Benjamin. I think he was more in shock to see all of them coming back. And upon entering the presence of Joseph, they immediately fell before him. He was the authority. There were no courts the way we think of courtrooms today. You couldn't call anyone to bail you out. You didn't get a phone call to call your attorney. They were in the, in the presence of the second most powerful man in Egypt. Notice verse 15. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Joseph begins to address their crimes. He points out the futility of trying to commit such a foolish crime since he has the power of divination, indicating he had power and more than one way to tap into the spirit world besides the cup that they held. And notice what happens next. In verses 16 through 34, we have the confession. Verse 16, 
Then Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? Notice, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. What a key verse. Judah first offered to share the blame. Then as we read later in the chapter, he is willing to shoulder all of the blame. And from this moment forward, Judah speaks on behalf of the group. And I think for good reason. He's come full circle. He realizes it was his idea to sell Joseph. And he's revealing that this whole situation is the result of the sin they committed 20 years earlier. He said, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. And here we are, your slaves. Heavy, heavy. It's significant to note that even though Benjamin was the only one charged, Judah acknowledged that all were equally involved. He says, Don't you? I mean, I find that interesting. If Benjamin was guilty, so were all of them. Furthermore, he said they all deserved to be punished, even though they were all innocent in this particular situation. It took Judah over 20 years to confess his sin over Joseph. And look where they're at now. 20 years. Rest assured, folks, unconfessed sin will find you out. Numbers uh, 32.23 states, Behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Unconfessed sin is crippling in the life of the believer. That's why we're encouraged to confess our sin as early as possible in order to receive mercy rather than judgment. Psalm 32 verse 5 says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time in a time that you may be found. Because there may be a time where he may not be found. It might be too late. You see, that's why we're to confess early. If I sin against you, I need to confess. If I've wronged my wife, I need to confess. I need to talk. I need to get this off of me. Because the further you go on in life with unconfessed sin, it becomes a big burden. And ultimately, it'll come back. You know, again, you plant beans, you're going to get beans. You plant watermelons, you're going to get watermelons. You're going to reap what you have sown. And God is not in heaven ruling with an iron fist as some have made him out to be. His desire is to love on you and his desire is to restore you. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn. How important is that? And turn from your wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. What an incredible promise. And that's something that as a people of God, we need to do. And yet, we wonder why things are the way they are today. Our country is knee-deep in sin. We're in trouble. And we need to turn to God. Okay? Well, say, that's your job, pastor. No, 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 no. These guys aren't pastors. Yet God was instrumental in their lives, wasn't he? You don't have to be a pastor. You need to be a child of God. You need to obey him. But you need to turn to him. If you're in sin, I, I encourage you, you need to confess it. 
God wants to hear from us. He wants to do things in our life. Unfortunately, we limit him. We limit him. Verse 17. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. Notice what Joseph is saying. Joseph rejects their offer to share the blame with Benjamin. He says, since only one man was guilty of the theft, the rest of you, you know, you can go home. You're free to go. And Joseph is still forcing the issue. He's probing. And he knew exactly which nerve to touch. Notice what he says. Go up in peace to your what? Your father. Your father. You think he touched the right nerve? The mention of the father only exasperated them even more because they knew how their father would respond if they returned without him. Verse 18, Then Judah came near to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing, and do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. Judah begins to rise to the occasion, and like his other brothers. As we'll soon see, it was through his confession and sincerity that Joseph responds and reveals himself in the next chapter. Notice Judah appeals to the, the fulfilled demands Joseph placed on them in verses 19 through 23. Let me go ahead and read 19 through 23. He again appeals to how they fulfilled his commands. He says, My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with me, you shall see my face no more. Notice what he's saying here. Judah recounted to Joseph all the events that led up to this confrontation. He acknowledged his power and his authority, and that all he could do is plead, plead for his mercy. And what I find interesting so far is he's recounting for Joseph his interest in their father. Joseph is the one who asked about their father, how he insisted on having them bring Benjamin down to Egypt at their expense, and at the expense of possibly losing their father if something should happen to Benjamin. Did you guys get that? He is saying, you are the one who asked. And, and you know what? We brought him at the expense of possibly losing our father. He's illustrating that they had everything to lose by bringing Benjamin down. And yet they did it because of his request. In effect, Judah was pleading not only for Benjamin's life, but ultimately the life of his father. That's pretty heavy. Man, he would have been a good attorney. He's pleading for his brother and his father. Now notice Judah's appeal to Joseph's compassion in verses 24 to 31. He says, So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, Go back and buy us a little food. But we said, We cannot go down if our youngest brother is with us. Then we will go down, for we may not see the man's face unless 
Our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. And then one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. Notice, Judah conveys how his father finally consented in taking Benjamin down to Egypt with him. Then he tells them of his father's final plea. He reminds them of, he reminds all his sons how Rachel had given birth to only two sons. One was no more, and he hadn't seen him since, since of the situation. You know the situation. He hadn't seen him since. And he said, you do this, he doesn't come back. You're going to bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Judah assured Joseph that the very life of his father was bound up in the life of his younger brother, Benjamin. He knew if he returned home without him, the shock, would be too much for Israel, and he would die. And this is the part that got me. I wonder what that was like for Joseph to hear Judah talk about Israel's love for his mother, Rachel. To hear that. He hadn't heard that in a long time. And then, and then he, he talks about his love for Joseph after all these years that his father still grieves for him over his death. He's not forgotten. He still loves his son. And to hear him talk about his love for his younger brother and that how he's all that's left of that relationship. What was that like for Joseph? To know he still mattered to him. No doubt his heart was overwhelmed. To hear that his father still talks about him. Now Judah appeals to Joseph's power. Verses 32 to 34. He says, For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I, do not, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? Lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. So Judah appeals to Joseph's power. In verse 32, Judah makes his final appeal. He indicates to Joseph how he, he became surety for Benjamin in the event if something should happen to him. Something I don't think Joseph didn't ex or expected to hear. What do you mean you became surety for him? I remember you being a self-serving man, a carnal man. In verses 33 to 34, Joseph didn't anticipate this response from Judah. Judah was a changed man. He's certainly different than the man we ran into in chapter 38. Again, a man who lived after the flesh. Judah can't argue Benjamin's innocence, for the evidence says otherwise. However, he's saying if he deserved punishment... Would it be possible that he himself might 
bear the blame instead of Benjamin. He's saying, I'll take the bag. I'll take the guilt. I'll become your slave. But please spare my brother. Well, again, what was that like for Joseph? Coming from a man who stopped his ears from his cries 20 years earlier. He's a changed man. There's something different about him. He was willing to assume his brother's punishment and take his place. Again, what a beautiful picture of Christ, right? You know, uh, Christ is innocent. He assumes and bears our sins, willing to take the punishment so we could live. Judah was indeed different. And Judah, or I'm sorry, Joseph knows it. There's no longer any doubt in Joseph's mind that his brothers were changed men. And how do we know this? How do we know that he knows that they're changed men? To be continued. Next chapter, verse 45. Tune in next week as you you hear Henry teach chapter 45. But let me conclude with this. Eventually we're all going to face the fact that we're all sinners. We're all guilty before an almighty God. The question is, are we going to acknowledge we're in need of a Savior? Folks, what is clearly taught in the last two chapters is you will reap what you have sown. Consequences, whether good or bad, are forthcoming. The lesson is God is gracious as he deals with each and every one of us as individuals. As individuals. The bigger picture in these uh, chapters set before us is the fate of the nation that was hung in the balance as a result of Israel's decisions. He loved one son more than the others. And this is what you get. This is what you get. And in spite of his bad decisions, God could turn evil for good. He has the power to perform it. He has the power to get it done. So why is this story so important? It's to demonstrate that God is in control. Remember who caused the famine? It was God. He used the famine to deal with Israel's sons about their sin. Right? He deals with their past. He uses situations to fulfill prophecy. Joseph's dream. He used Joseph's life as an object lesson of a life characterized by faithfulness. God sent this man into into Egypt in order to save the nation. You know, Genesis 45, verse 7 and 8 says, And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout the land, all the land of Egypt. God sent him. He's in control. God is sovereign despite man's sinful propensities. Now, there are those on the other side that argue that God is therefore the author of sin. Why so? Because after all, I mean, he sent Joseph into Egypt by manipulating Israel's sons into selling them into bondage. That's twisted. In essence, what they're saying is, God is one with their sin. My Bible says there is no unrighteousness with God. You know, um, Romans, if you read Romans 9.14, it says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. God is righteous. You know, Romans 3... uh, Verses 4 through 20 outlines for us the state of man, our condition. 
We're natural born killers. We're sinners. Set apart. We're sinners. Born sinners. Verses 21 through 26. God is the justifier. He provides our justification. It's all his doing. He justifies us. Man is incapable of doing so. Romans 3, 27 and 28. Man is justified by faith, not the law. God, by his mercy and foreknowledge, is capable of utilizing our bad decisions for his glory. He takes what you and I meant for evil, and he turns it around for good. And yet, how, how uh, the nature of man, it's your fault. We're great blame shifters. You go to the book of Genesis, what did he say to Adam? It's the woman you gave me. The first place where you see blame shifting. The woman you gave me. And yet, here we are as sinners, and we charge God with being unrighteous. No, he uses our evilness and turns it around for his glory. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven says, For I know the thoughts I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. I think Joseph had a good perspective regarding the nature of God. You know, he says in Genesis fifty twenty, But as for you, you thought evil against me, right? To enslave him. But God meant it unto good to bring it to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. God's in control. He'll use us. Whether it's good or bad, He'll use us. But I want to be on the right side. Remember, it's always good to do what's right. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you again. And Lord, we thank you for just these examples we see in the Scripture about how, how gracious you are and sovereign you are that in light of our sinful propensities, you still manage to do what's good. And so, Lord, I just pray for every man here tonight. Lord, if they have not repented, Lord, if they have not turned from their sin, Lord, you convict them. And tonight, Lord, they would turn. And so, Lord, we thank you for providing for us. We thank you for your word, for it's good. We thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.